I feel I should begin uh, by justifying my presence here and mention that I'm humbled by Penelope's wonderful uh, uh, presentation. And I'm not a theorist, neither uh, a historian of photography. Uh, I'm a historian, though. My research deals with British and lately American intellectuals writing on Southeastern Europe in the first half of the 20th century. So you may wonder, what am I doing here? Well, uh, I have a long-lasting interest in the use of photography as well. Although humanitarian activists have been employing photography to document suffering for more than a century now, only recently, in light of the visual turn in history and the turn towards the history of humanitarianism, have historians started taking photography seriously, I would argue, problematizing its uses and historicizing the truth that the frame conveys. Now, the theme of today's paper took shape gradually following an invitation to speak about the unfolding refugee crisis uh, in New York whilst being a visiting fellow at the Remark Institute a few months ago. Uh, the talk morphed into a visual essay forthcoming in the Journal of Greek Media and Culture, and I should acknowledge Elaine Papagiriou, the commission editor of the piece, and thank you very much. Um, now, when preparing for my presentation in New York on the politics of the refugee crisis, uh, news of awards granted to Greek photojournalists came along for their uh, coverage of the humanitarian crisis well all over the Greek blogosphere. At first, I thought of it as another instance of provincialism, Greeks cheering the, fellow achievement, the, the achievements of fellow Greeks, this time photographers. Concurrently, the photographic subject, the photographer, was becoming a key fictional character in accounts of the refugee crisis for uh, the learned American audience. This is a quote I just find interesting, so I'll just put it up there for you to read. Uh, for instance, I recall reading Martin Amis's uh, October, a short fictional account of the refugee crisis in Europe commissioned by the New Yorker. The main character of the story, a writer on a book tour in Germany, grasps the magnitude of the crisis by conversing with a German-Iranian photographer, trivially called Bernhardt. Now, then the author mentions a photograph from a German rail station depicting refugees being welcomed with applause by sympathetic citizens sympathetic citizens and volunteers. In the photograph, some of the arrivals were smiling, some laughing, and some were just breathing deeply and walking that much taller, it seemed, as if something had at last been restored to them. Incidentally, I should mention that uh, talking about the German open border policy in the BBC Newsnight program a couple of days ago, the German deputy finance minister attributed the increasing refugee waves to the deleterious effects of the, and, he, and I quote him here, of the digitization of seeing. This is how the minister referred to the message conveyed by the circulation of such photographs, the digitization of seeing. Now, this quote up in the screen is in striking contrast to the hungry and very tired crowds captured by Bernhardt's lens in the Austrian border. These are the photographs that the author Ames's alter ego carries across the Atlantic. And this is a key quote from the passage, and I will read. It was as if Bernhardt's camera had set itself the task of individualization, because here was a black and white galera of immediately and endearingly recognizable shapes and faces. Bantering, yawning, frowning, grinding, scolding, weeping, in postures of exhaustion, stoic dynamism, and of course, extreme uncertainty and dismay. 
The black and white photographs enact Europe's dark history, turning the author to the study of Mark Mazower's dark continent. A book, and here I quote from the author, not about Africa, but about Europe's 20th century. Amy asserts in the conclusion, in the concluding sentences of the, his piece. Let us now turn from photography as a fictional device and the photographer as a fictional character to some of the images, photographers and their stories. Bearing in mind that as Rodogno and Ferenbach, editors of a pioneering volume on the history of humanitarian photography argue, the visual imagery amounts to moral rhetoric masquerading as visual evidence. Or, as Susan Sondag would have it, Humanitarian photographs are, and I quote from Sontag, it's not in there, uh, species of rhetoric. They reiterate, they simplify, they agitate, they create the illusion of consensus, end quote. Their purported immediacy translates passion into action. Now, one of the most frequently discussed themes regarding the framing of humanitarian catastrophes revolves around the ethics of photography and the standpoint of the photographer. To go back to Amis for one last time, the author's biggest regret is that upon meeting Bernhard, the photographer, he didn't raise the subject of the latter's distance. And the quote is up for you there to read. I felt the impulse to ask Bernhard if at any point he had found necessary to disengage himself from the 800 refugees he, the docu he documented their trip. I didn't ask, Amy says, but I could have and I should have. Now, the veteran photojournalist Yanis Pechrakis, who has recently been voted as the Guardian Photojournalist of the Year, broached this question when he remarked, I have been covering refugee issues for more than 25 years, but this year is different, Pechrakis asserts. The refugees are arriving in my country. The easiest part of this job is to take pictures. The hardest, he says, battle is the emotional involvement. It was so sad to see the same thing happen again and again. These lines were inserted as a caption in the frontispiece of a collection of Behraktis' photographs for the printed digital editions of the Guardian. Many of these images depict refugees in dinghies battling with rough seas, as well as volunteers trying to save them. They convey a sense of mayhem and frustration. In one of Behraktis' most memorable photographs, the enormous red sun withering away in the horizon overpowers the frame. The dark, blue, the dark blue sky is in fact the centerpiece of the photograph, and this sets the spectator further apart. In the calm sea, one discerns something akin to a black spot, an overcrowded dinghy resembling a makeshift raft. Shadows dominate the lower part of the frame. The photograph has prompted mixed reactions. One can hardly miss the apocalyptic tone of the frame, which bears similarities with the posters of Francis Ford Coppola's film Apocalypse Now. That's the first thing that came in my mind. The contrast of the natural and the human world, the focus on the sublime, seems to accentuate the tragic fate of human nature. One way of looking at the frame would be to point out a perhaps involuntary aestheticization of the refugees' suffering. However, the location of the dinghy in the frame prompted me to think of the refugees as a black spot on the horizon, some kind of memento mori that ruins the, sens the sensational effect of the photograph. A dose of reality, perhaps, in what could otherwise be an idyllic scenery of setting sun and calm waters. 
At the same time, the spectator is kept at a distance, unable to discern and ascribe agency to the shadows. Berhakis' photograph of a tourist walking, and that's uh, the caption, of a tourist walking past an Iranian migrant collapsing next, next to his son and wife moments after arriving in an engine less dingy. This image brought to mind a number of photographs circulating in Greek and international media since last summer, depicting tourists swimming and sunbathing while refugees and migrants were washed away on the same beaches and shores. And this is another uh, photograph by the Heikis as well. How is it possible for tourists to leave their myth in Greece to evoke one of the official touristic slogans, while at the same time, in the same location, other risk what is left of their lives to face, to flee war and destruction. Well, this takes me to the second theme of this presentation, which I'm just gonna get in right now. One of the most widely circulated photographs last summer featured three elderly women sitting on a bench looking after an infant in the presence of its mother. The photograph went viral in social media and circulated widely in, Greek and inter in, in, Greek, in the Greek and international press. The photographer, Lefteris Partsaris, spoke of the joy he felt in finding out the warm reception of this photograph. The shot was captured on an afternoon visit to the so-called Campus of Misfits in Lesbos. There Partsaris spotted, and I quote from him, three elderly ladies who were resting aside while the woman tried to feed her crying baby in front of them. The ladies turned to her and in a local Greek dialect offered to nurture the baby. The mother understood their body language and handed them the baby. Then the photographer asserted, I rejoiced for I enjoyed what I was seeing, witnessing. I had my camera and captured the frame. Indeed. The frame conveys a feeling of comfort. The distance between the three elderly ladies on the bench and the mother maintains a sense of separation, which is nonetheless overridden by a bond of trust. The power of the image stems from the two different dynamics at play. One cannot help noticing the subversion of the traditional Madonna and child imagery. The veiled mother, dressed in colorful clothes and bright sneakers, looks at ease, even unburdened. Her expression, seemingly responding to somebody or something outside the frame, somehow disrupts the narrative of the photograph. The world of elderly women is one of care and compassion. Their aged, scarred faces seem to naturally blend in with the stony background. In many ways, they represent an archetypical mode of humanitarian agent. It thus comes as no surprise that recently, one of the Greek grandmothers of the photograph, Emilia Cambisi, has been co-nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, photographs have a life on their own. And to evoke Sondag again, <laughs> this is Sondag. The photographer's intentions do not determine the meaning of the photograph, which will have its own career, blown by the whims and loyalties of the diverse communities that they have used for it, that have used for it. The whims and loyalties. 
Perhaps the most telling political use of Parcialis's grandmother's photograph was the deployment of an enlarged version in the background of a press conference delivered by the Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras in the presence of the President of the EU Parliament, Martin Schulz, in Athens in November 2015. The press conference took place in Athens, in the Athens International Airport, inaugurating a meager refugee relocation program, and I'm not sure as if the program still exists right now, it's probably being debated as we speak. But Silas's photograph, projected in the background, was said to evoke memories of a benevolent and hospitable Europe, welcoming those in need. The Greek Premier employed it to, and this is a long quote from the Greek Premier, I might read the last part, you're welcome to read it. Uh, now, the Greek Premier employed to project an image of Greece as the defender of humanity and the upholder of the principles of hospitality, even in times of economic devastation. Among other things, Tsipras says, a photo, as some suggest, is worth of a thousand words. And indeed, this image is worth, and indeed, this image is worth a thousand words. I guess it's synonymous to one world, humanity. This is the Europe we want to live in. We don't want to live in a Europe that builds up walls, fences, and then the story goes. He says that as he speaks in the press conference. This is a screenshot from the press conference. Right. However, and before we go to the children, it should be mentioned that regardless of the heroic efforts of many local communities and international volunteers, there have been individuals and communities across some Greek islands who have reacted violently against the setting up of the so-called hotspots for the refugees. Stories of racial discrimination, ill-treatment, and exploitation are frequently making headlines. And I don't have enough time to expand on the concept of hospitality, philoxenia, as we say in Greek. There have been lots and lots of conceptual and non-debates on the meaning and the concept of hospitality. I'm happy to address that in the discussion. Now, my third point relates to children. The dinghies are overwhelmingly filled with children, many of whom travel alone. Recently, the Europol has reported at least 10,000 child refugees, that at least 10,000 child refugees are missing or can't be identified across Europe. Representations of the suffering child often employ Christian iconography, hiking back at the drop of Madonna and the child or the Pietà as a strategy of touching sensibilities and mobilizing responses. Furthermore, the visual vocabulary of the child, of the lone child, may be traced back to the late 19th century famines in the periphery of the British Empire. The First World War, and the ensuing famines in Central Europe and Russia marked the emergence of the figure of the lone child as an object of humanitarian relief, inviting the effective attention of the audience and evoking familial instincts. In this series, I'll just focus on two main photographies and photographs. The one is a photographer called Zais Dali, I hope I pronounced his name well. Uh, he's working with the UNHR in Greece and he has been, and he had, and himself, he has been exposed to the kind of suffering captured in his frames. He has been, I believe, a triple amputee after shooting on location in Afghanistan. And there have been articles in the press about him. Um, now, 
the photograph I want to focus on is the last part of a sequence called We Saw Death With Our Own Eyes from his Legacy of War project. This is the first photograph portrays, and I read, an overcrowded boat of Syrian refugees heading to the shore. One Syrian has fallen from the boat. He was rescued. The second photograph depicts refugees swimming to the shores. Surviving struggle ashore, their boat carrying Syrian refugees had capsized. In the background, the Spanish lifeguard, one of the many volunteers working on the beach, swims out to help other survivors. Now, in this one, the caption reads, with fear etched on their faces following their journey by a boat across the Aegean, an Afghan family arrives in Lesbos. From the caption, we already know that the three men are a family, three generations. On the one side of the frame, the father or older relative, making up for the mother, for the missing mother. In the background, uh, on the, uh, we, we just see rocks, sea water, fence, and, and other refugees. The faces of the two younger boys are the faces of horror. The teenager is frightened in a state of shock. The boy's eyes pierce through the camera. They reflect the photographic lens. A sense of transparency is transmitted across time, across the frame. Who can assume the moral responsibility to respond to the cry for help in the look of this boy? Fear has been, and I quote again, etched on their faces. I want to juxtapose this image to another photograph by the award-winning Greek photographer Agios Georginis. Here we encounter a different representation of the child. The image shifts from the traditional depiction of suffering, I would argue, gravitating towards images of self-reliant and resilient re recipients of aid, although it's not quite like that in this picture. For Georginis, the crisis brought back memories for his, of his childhood growing up in an Athenian neighborhood filled with Iraqi immigrants, according to his own admission. The young girl also looks straight into the camera. She's elevated, the wind blowing through her hair, and a torch light illuminating her face. Her posture has a monumental quality to the, morning, to the moment. In the background, the light of dawn breaks. Her eyes convey a different sense of pity. She's not crying. There is no sense of immediacy in her look. The sheer passivity of the victim is reversed, as we notice that she's attempting to unzip the life jacket, assisted by her caregivers, as if she wishes to break free from the shackles of an odious journey. In doing so, a colorful t-shirt reveals itself as the light exposes a harsh reality. A girl's empty gauge. Her recognizable features are still that of Christian iconography, from which the photographer draws inspiration. To render her accessible to the average European audience. And I think he allows success to do so. Now, admittedly, one of the most poignant features that came to define the plight of children in this crisis was a, it was a sequence of photographs of a young boy lying dead on the shores of Turkey. Above the boy's corpse stood a Turkish paramilitary force with his back turned into the camera, holding his mobile phone, presumably calling for assistance. The press photographer, Nilufer Demir, came across the body of the boy in one of her daily expeditions documenting the departure of, of refugees from the Turkish shores. 
Upon seeing the corpse, she almost felt paralyzed. The act of taking the photograph, and I quote from the photographer, was the only way to express the scream of the boy's silent body, end quote. A cropped version of the photograph depicting the boy's silent body circulated widely across the globe with astounding political effects. His name was on everybody's lips, Alan Cudi. As expected, the image prompted a debate on the West's obligations towards the Syrian crisis, as well as on the ethics of photography. American newspapers swiftly compared the photograph to, to other iconic depictions of suffering, from the civil rights movement to the, Vietno to the Vietnam War. Other media outlets refused to publish the pictures, citing respect for the victim's family. A few critics derided the photograph as visual pornography. And some journalists even accused the photographer of staging the photograph. Now, as you probably may have noticed, I decided not to project, to project this image, but rather I want to evoke the photograph, this photograph, showing a rather grotesque reenactment uh, from the Chinese visual artist Ai Weiwei. I posed on a beach, on a pebble beach in Lesbos. The, his body lay in a similar position to that of the young boy. Weiwei claimed that the idea for the reenactment was spontaneous, prompted by his efforts to raise awareness about the plight of the refugees and to reinstate, and I quote from him, human concerns in today's politics, end quote. How can the image of a middle-aged man lying on the pebbles of a beach match the affected qualities of a photograph of a dead young boy washed ashore? Weiwei's failed reenactment typifies, I would argue, the failed, the boundaries of the political humanitarian art he espouses. Now, this takes us to the fraught theme of art, politics, and humanitarian action. In the past months, props, remnants of the refugees' odious journey, life jackets, life rafts, thermal blankets, have been employed to display, to display the pain of others. Life jackets robbed in the entrance of Berlin's concert house. Life, life rafts hanging from temples. Blankets making up for the new European flag. Now, I do not wish to say that all these uh, interventions are the same, of the same quality, of the same value. Uh, I will just leave this matter to debate for the art critics, the art historians. I just only wish to highlight this aspect, and particularly that element of props being as were traveling across our, even <coughs> our, our Western metropoles. Um, what I want to do is that, in the few minutes I've got left, is that to mention that there's another feature of the representation of, the, of refugeedom that I find interesting. And I have just started looking into it, so I welcome any suggestions you might have. And that's to say I'm interested in connecting the visual vocabulary of the current crisis with that of the 1922 refugee crisis in the shore of the same lands. And I will use this as, as a sort of introduction to, to what I want to try and do in the future. I don't know how many of you can read Greek. All of you, I assume, should I translate it? I guess I will translate it. So to set it up, this is... Um, uh, a sketch by a very prominent, uh, controversial Greek uh, cartoonist. Uh, there we see, it seem, there seems to be some sort of line, 
sort of a refugee check-in, and there's a grandpa in the front. So uh, the policeman goes, Grandpa, if you entered illegally, we would have to send you back to Turkey. Then the grandpa replies, well, that sounds good. And the policeman says, uh, your entry date? And then the grandpa replies, well, 12th of September, 1922. So this photograph, I'm not going to get into details. Obviously, there are immense historical differences between the epochs and the people coming in the shore of Greece in the same islands from uh, Asia Minor. It's a completely different story, but all I'm trying to say is that it's very interesting to start thinking in connecting the sort of different visual vocabulary that we find the play, bearing in mind the long story of the progress of photography, photographic practices, and humanitarian photography as well, in particular. Now, this picture is from a 1922 volume, um, photo, or 1992 photo book, uh, published by the Center for Asian Minor Studies. There, uh, in Greek, the, the, the epigraph up there just says that we're talking about refugees from Caesarea and Kilikia, uh, deported in uh, Corfu, 16th of October, 1924. Now, uh, well, to conclude, to conclude, the refugee crisis does not appear to be settling anytime soon. The same may be said about the unwillingness of the EU states to address the underlying causes of the calamity and the inability of the Greek authorities to manage the refugee influx. Today there is another unpredictable EU summit. The only known fact is that the suffering of families, children, women and men will carry on and photographs will remain the means by which we relate to the facts. Thank you very much.